But I'll say no more about that and we'll move on to the character of God. Wow, what a subject. And I've been blessed to be given love in 20 minutes. I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to refer to notes more than I normally would. And the reason for that is that if I don't, we're likely to be having cream tea for breakfast. That's fine with me, but I suspect you probably want to get home at some point in between. I'll do anything for a cream tea, to be honest. But it's a huge subject. It's a huge undertaking. And that characteristic of love is massive in its own right. I think when I'm considering scripture, I always like to hold a caveat at the end. I often have conversations with Dave Downer and we'll, we'll often disagree and we'll, we'll go through things. And we always finish by going, but I might be wrong. There's a release in that humility when we handle God's scriptures of being able to say, actually, if we think we understand it fully, if we think we completely grasp the mind and the love and the grace of God, boy, are we wrong. And if anybody does think that, come and explain it to me because I'd love to hear it. I heard something recently that made me smile on this subject. And after I'd smiled and giggled a bit, it stayed with me. I love it when that happens. And it was this. That we were not given the scriptures so that we can prove that we are right and everyone else is wrong. We're given the scriptures to bring us humbly into a place of realisation that God is right. And we're all just doing our best. Again, there's a release in that, isn't it? There's a release in knowing that we have one who is in control. There's another thing I like to remember when I'm considering the scriptures. And it brings me always to a place of humility. It's to remember that God one day spoke to Balaam through his donkey. And some might say that it's a model that God has continued to use to this day. And I think I'm allowed to say that because I'm the one that's speaking. So I want to start by saying that the best that we can hope for this morning, the best I can hope to give you, is something that's incomplete. It's something that's partial. It's something that's a reflection. That's something seen through a glass darkly. That's a mere shadow of the truth that is to come. Well, there we go. So I've titled this Unchanging Love in Changing Days. We hear, don't we, a lot about God's unchanging character, about the unchangingness of God. But we live in changing times, and actually that's never really been any different, has it? I haven't put a lot on the PowerPoint. Dan very kindly sent me a PowerPoint template with rules and instructions, and I didn't really understand them. Um, So I've tried to comply with them, but that limited me a little bit. So what I've done is I've come up with six headings. And the reason I've done that, the reason I put it there, it's out of love for you guys. When we get to number five, we're near the end. So introduction definitions, we've done a bit of that already. It's no wonder when we consider love, when you consider the effect that music has had on the generations of the last 50 or 70 years, it's no wonder that when we talk about love, there's confusion. Elvis couldn't help falling in it. Tina Turner thought it was a second-hand emotion. 
Huey Lewis told us it was a curious thing. Mark King in level 42 wanted to give us lessons in it, though I'm not sure they were ever very good lessons. Jennifer Rush thought it was a force from above, and Lionel Richie said it was endless. Lennon McCartney said it was all we needed, and Amy Grant sang of a love of another kind. For those of us of a certain age, yeah, probably most of us, um, Don Francisco told us that it wasn't a feeling, it was an act of the will. But perhaps my favourite is when Rich Mullins, writing about Jesus, said that he gave love a face. And he gave love a name. But all of these things put together, or at least most of them, confuse the definition, the definition for those that we may talk to about Jesus. But we have to remember in all this, we serve a God of definitions. We get it the wrong way around. We look at things that God does and we say, but that's not loving. Well, that's a brave debate to have, and I look forward to hearing you have it with God, but I think, um, I think I know who my money's on. See, he doesn't go out of his way to fit into our inevitably flawed definitions. And yet the greatest message that we can bring to the people out there is that message of the love of God. But we bring it to a culture where words don't have the same meaning from one person to the next. In Exodus 34 and verse 6, God describes, the passage describes God passing before Moses as he stood on Mount Sinai. And he proclaims himself to be, among other things, abounding in steadfast love. Abounding is a good word, but I would want to join it. I want to call it extravagant. I want to call it immeasurable. I want to call it incomprehensible. At least to me, you may be brighter than I am. It's gracious. It's above and beyond. It's irresistible. Feel free to add your own. And this passage in Exodus 34 is at the end of a three-chapter narrative that sets a theme, a thread, if you will, that runs through Scripture and specifically through God's relationship with man. It's a narrative that runs from a place of rebellion to a place of mediation and then to a place of restoration. And we've benefited from it and all of those that have gone before us have benefited from it. And ironically in this moment, as Moses stands atop Mount Sinai, they seem to be practicing and managing to have all three at the same time. Very talented people, the Jews, but never underestimate them. You see, at the same time, you've got rebellion because they're building a calf. You've got mediation as God mediates with Moses. And you've got restoration as God bestows upon Moses the Mosaic Covenant, which is the way that they can move forward in relationship with him. And we'll touch on that again as we take a short trip, hopefully short, on this theme that runs through the scriptures. I want to start, though, just by looking at context. I spent some years listening to a man called David Mills. He died a few years ago. I owe him a lot of thanks because he had, him and his wife had a, had a daughter called Erica, and Erica introduced my wife and I. And he used to say this when he spoke. When you take... In fact, I'll let you try and finish it off. We'll have a bit of audience participation. When you take the text 
out of context. All you're left with is a... All you're left with is a cop. And that's great, isn't it? And when we look at these stories, if we look at these stories at the beginning of Genesis, bear in mind these are written by Moses in Moses' context, trying to apply a context that was two and a half thousand year, years earlier. So that's a bit like us trying to write something and explaining the context of the silent years before the coming of Jesus, because that's a similar length of time. And he does an amazing job of it. But God, by his grace, always works in our context where we are. Dan Whitehead heads up Sanctuary Mental Health in Canada. They also work in the UK. And he wants to put it like this. He said, there may only be one way to God, but there is no end to the ways that God will reach down to man. I'm sure he probably nicked it off somebody else, but since I don't know who it was, we'll give him the credit for now. And so when we're considering Scripture, we hold it in this tension of sometimes things that appear harsh and unloving to us, but is actually God showing exuberant grace in the situation he's speaking into. Let's look at Genesis chapter 22. If you'll forgive me for a moment's frivolity, you've probably worked out for now I like a little frivolity in my life. I love the end of this passage. I love the image of Abraham coming, coming home, coming, coming home and being told, and the joy of learning that his brother and his sister-in-law had been blessed with children. And that joy being mixed with the news that they had called the first two Uz and Buzz. I'm sure there's a reason for it. That just makes me smile. But I digress. And in this passage, we learn that Abraham has come with Isaac to Moriah and prepared to sacrifice him as commanded by God. And I've always been intrigued by the cold matter of factness of the way this is written. There may be many reasons for that, and we're not going to explore them now, except to say that in Abraham's Canaanite worldview, this was not a strange or an unusual request. And it was one that he was clearly willing to be obedient to. We know from historic texts that these practices were common. We see it in Phoenicia, we see it in North Africa, in all the Punic colonies that were around at that time. And in the Canaanite worldview, the God who provided fertility was entitled to a portion of what had been produced. Be that animals be it grain, be it children. So when we see in verse 11 that the angel stops Abraham from following through with the sacrifice of his son, what seems to us to be something of a slightly dirty and cruel trick, in Abraham's context, is a mind-blowing culture shift. It's then borne out in God's promises of fruitfulness that come from Abraham's willingness to be obedient to him. But what about the slaves? Where am I going with this, you may think? Well, I'm jumping forward. I'm jumping forward to the New Testament. And I want to draw a parallel. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus on the subject of slaves. And we naturally ask, don't we? Why doesn't Paul denounce the practice of slavery? But again, we've got to look at it in the context of the time. 
I could get very energized by this. I think it's a fascinating subject. But we're just going to look at what Paul says. So he's done the bit about slaves obey your masters and all of that stuff. But then he says this, and this is the same as God, or very similar. It's the same theme to God telling Abraham to stop. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven And there is no favoritism with him. He's speaking to the culture. His words in the context of the time, again, are mind-blowing and radical to the people that he speaks them to. God's love and God's interaction with us is always grounded in his grace. And it always makes space for where we are at. We see a repeating theme of this throughout Scripture, don't we? Of this idea of rebellion, of mediation, of reconciliation. It keeps coming up time and again. It seems to me, dare I say this, you look like an open-minded lot. But dare I suggest that maybe God is more willing to move for man than man is willing to move for God. We see it in the sacrificial system. How many times do we read in the prophets of God saying, I don't want your sacrifices. He stops stops short of saying, what's this thing you've got about killing things for me? But you almost feel that there's a bit of that in it. We see it in Hosea, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Samuel. Just a thought as we pass through that, that challenges me that maybe the sacrificial system was all about the people's journey back to God. It was never meant to be the same. It was never meant to stay in the same place. They were never meant to stay in that place of brokenness. It was just easier. And then we come to Jesus, because we can't, can we, consider the character of God in the, in the context of love. We can't do that without thinking of the cross. And we see this narrative where every time that man lets God down, every time that man moves away from God's covenant, God gets really angry and doesn't talk to him anymore. No. Every time he comes back with a new one. Every time he says, yeah, that one didn't work, but I've got something new, let's try this. Don't you just love that? Doesn't that just echo those of you that have been parents or aren't parents, doesn't that just echo how you work with your children? That didn't work. Let's come back with another way. And then eventually we get to his ultimate plan. The Old Testament covenants had been tried and failed and now we see Jesus. Remember we said earlier, the one who gives love a face and gives love a name. And despite all the scriptures for telling his coming, he's rejected. And on that good Friday, he's brought to Golgotha. And I hope that you'll allow me a little poetic license for this. He sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pleads, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Did he fear death? Well, I don't think he was looking forward to it. 
But if ever there was a man who lived who did not need to fear death, it was Jesus. So is this the sacrifice as he hangs innocent on a cross? The sky darkens as an eternity of all of those things that separate us, each one of us individually. Every one of them comes to rest. And they rest along with the hopes of the world on the shoulders of a homeless man from Galilee. And I wonder, is this the sacrifice that in the only time, in an eternity that we can't even begin to comprehend, that Godhead is separated because his love is so great, so incomprehensible, that the Son is willing to become all of the things that God cannot even bear to look upon. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't quoting Psalm 22. He wasn't. It was for you, it was for me. And it was because he'd become the very thing that the Godhead could not bear. For us, he became sin. And he did it willingly. We're getting there. Uh, And his victory is so much greater because of it. I'll try and wind up because I appreciate time's galloped on and we're only just getting to number five. I'm going to miss a little bit out. Paul writes, doesn't he, in that great passage about love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is all of these things. I think most of us have had traumatic events in our life. Nod, nod at me. Not, not all of you, some of you have done really well, but some of you are with me, you get the trauma thing. And often they shape us. I believe that when we allow God to use them to, to, to make all things for good, then they work to our benefit. When we don't, they damage us. I've experienced both. For me, one of the most traumatic things I've ever been through is being present in the Leppings Lane end of Hillsborough Stadium back in 1989. And I'll never forget the tragedies that unfolded on that day and subsequently. But there's a memory that I have, and it's a memory that fills me with hope. And I've deliberately picked an example that isn't about God. It's not about church. It's not about Christians. It's not about a prayer meeting or a Bible study. It was when, after we'd been held in the ground for a while, we were finally released and let out. As we walk into the street, I just have a memory of every door, every front door opening. I don't think there were any that didn't. And people beckoning us in to use the phone. They were conscious. We didn't have mobiles. Obviously, all the young people have gone out, so they won't understand that at all. But there was a time before mobile phones. And so they realized the need to connect with family. They invited us in with offers of their phone and offers of a cup of tea. 
Because remember, we're in Yorkshire. Okay, a little bit about Yorkshire theology. If Jesus is the answer, he must live in a cup of tea. Always worth remembering. But for me, those, those actions on that day, that's love, isn't it? That's love. That's what Paul tells us love is. That's abounding love. That's kindness. There's no boasting in that. It was just love and care for people that were going through a very, very hard time. So where are we going to finish? You guys have got a real heart from what I pick up talking to Andy and and those of you that I, I have the pleasure of meeting from time to time. You have a real heart that reflects Jesus' command when he says, always remember that such as you do to the least of these, you do also to me. I know that this is a place where there is a family with a heart for evangelism to spread the message of Jesus, to love those who are unloved, to welcome any who struggle to find a welcome, to model Jesus to the leper and to the sinner in whatever form they may take, to consider those who are last first and to keep the light of the kingdom shining and the door ever open. Is that enough analogies? Will will that do you for now? I, I sense that when I spend time with you guys. But we've been through a time that perhaps, that perhaps challenges that heart. A time that's made it harder to love. A time that's made it difficult to take that low place in the covenant as Jesus did. But as we come through it, as we refind our feet and work out where God would take us next, I believe there's an important message for us all. We can have a heart for the Great Commission. We can have a desire to take God's gospel. We can have a desire to share that incomprehensible sacrifice and love that Jesus showed us on the cross. We can desire it with all our hearts. But we can't practice the Great Commission unless we first practice the greatest commandment unless we can first love God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and love each other as we love love ourselves. There's an event in the Jewish calendar called Erev Yom Kippur. Anybody who knows a bit about Judaism will know Yom Yom Kippur is the day that we celebrate God's atonement. We celebrate God's forgiveness. Erev in Hebrew just means Eve. It's the Eve of Yom Kippur. What happened on the Eve of Yom Kippur? You go to one another and you ask for forgiveness. Because you can't come into God's presence to ask forgiveness unless first you've asked forgiveness for one another. So we need to practice that love of God, of one another, of of those that have hurt us, of those that have damaged us. Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 2, that by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. We're not saved because we're good, but we should be good because we're saved. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you remember nothing else of my ramblings, please remember this. Allow the Holy Spirit to soften your hearts because the works prepared for you will need soft hearts. Allow yourselves to be honed, sharpened by one another as iron sharpens iron because the works prepared for you will require you to have a clear mind and a sharp, firm will. And turn your focus to the things that are everlasting. Allow yourselves to look above. I'll repeat, lift up your heads beyond this world to the true goal, to the true treasure and build resilience because the work that God has for you will require resilience. I'm going to leave it there because cream tea waits. But all of those things say to me one thing for you. God ain't finished with you yet. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much. Bless you. Brilliant.